It began just as you see here. Do you know what you have just done? You have transferred us in time and space, and I hadn't even set the controls. Now I don't know where we are. We could be anywhere in the universe and at any time. Yes, this is how it began. The adventure that started by accident, taking us out of this time and place to a lost planet. Who's there? Who's there? Come with us into that strange new world. We cannot guarantee your safety, but I can promise you unimagined thrills. They know we've escaped. They're cutting through the door. Come with us to the petrified forest. Meet the Thals, the blonde giants who have survived the monstrous rule of the Daleks. We must get to the city. They could have scanners here, anything. I'm going back. No, you're not. We'll be killed. We'll never defeat the Daleks. Doctor Who, the brilliant science professor. The young man who triggered off this strange journey. The professor's frightened granddaughter. And the youngster who inherited her grandfather's adventurous spirit. Doctor Who and the Daleks. Now you can see them in color on the big screen, closer than ever before. So close you can feel their fire. So thrilling, you must be there. Barbara, look behind you! Stop the countdown! The bomb will destroy the planet! Welcome to the Bloody Pit. I am, of course, Rod Barnett, and tonight I have a special guest, a first-time guest in the Bloody Pit. Introduce yourself, Steve. Hey, it's Steve Sullivan, otherwise known as Stephen D. Sullivan, author, artist, editor, publisher, all sorts of good things like that. 
the uh, writer of the award-winning adaptation of Manos, The Hands of Fate, and currently writing Dr. Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. That's CushingHorrors.com. And you can read that for free, and you can sign up and give me a little money. And if you want to see the Manos stuff, it's ManosFilm.com. And there's just tons of other stuff too, going all the way back to Dungeons and Dragons and Chill and Dragonlance and well, yeah, that's Teenage Mutant Ninja the, Turtles. That's and been the fascinating thing for me with you, Steve, is that there's this whole backlog of stuff that you wrote or were at least involved in back in uh, whew, my youth. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the stuff yeah, that you I've been on doing for, this uh, for almost exactly 37 years professionally now, not counting college journalism and that kind of stuff. So, but yeah, uh, you were you were one of the folks toiling away at uh, TSR, working on Dungeons and Dragons and things of that nature. Yeah, I was an editor for a while. I edited was one of the editors on the basic expert sets that they now called Moldvay Cook. I edited one of the editions of Top Secret. That was the first revised edition. I did editorial work on the Fiend Folio, which I left my own name off of for various reasons. <laughs> oh, really? Is that yeah. uh, is that something you want to talk about publicly? Well, I mean, it, it was well, it was kind of. We didn't get to do a lot of editing on it. And I also had, as an editor, I'd left Bill Winlingham's name off of a, a couple of products accidentally, and I told him the next time I did it, I'd leave my own name off of it. And I th- <laughs> I think the Fiend Folio may have been the one that I compensated Bill Willingham for screwing up his credits on. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, it's like 36 years ago now, so I uh, don't completely remember. But I can tell you where all the bodies are buried on that. I worked with Al Hammock, who I... <laughs> Who wrote the Ghost Tower of Inverness, and I was I added that as well. So well, there's a whole to, bunch I have of stuff. To confess is to you that uh, the Fiend Folio, the Fiend Folio, when that came out, the Fiend Folio was something that I, I and my group of lunatics just cherished. I mean, we loved the Fiend Folio. So <laughs> it was fun, and a lot of it came directly over from Britain and White Dwarf, where they played with that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. Don Don Turnbull actually brought, uh, who was the editor at TSR UK, I think, at that point, or the head of it, brought over completed typeset pages. So any errors we found, we had to find a type style that matched the British type style and then <laughs> insert the little error corrections without having to retypeset anything else. It was a real pain in the butt. And, and Don, I remember, we because of trademark things you had to have a tag that went with it and harold johnson and i and maybe al too came up with the tome of creatures malevolent and benign which we thought was kind of cool <laughs> and don cool. Turnbull was like no in england tome is a dry and uninteresting book <laughs> and we were like yeah what's your point <laughs> <laughs> we ain't, we ain't in england limey <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, he was he was a really nice guy. I don't think he's with us anymore. But uh, <laughs> oh, well. many many adventures in D and D, including editing B three, the one that got banned and and destroyed, and all that kind of stuff. So I, I did a lot of that stuff, and then I did a lot of maps for a long time, including maps for Dragonlance and maps for Hero Games, and just all sorts of stuff. And did a bunch of comics along the way too, and eventually ended up writing novels, which is what I'm doing now, mostly. Occasionally well, and, still uh, art. Yeah, and I, I, I'm a big fan of the, the recent output, of course, and uh, anybody who's listened to even a couple of these shows has heard at least one advertisement for some of your work. 
Uh, I yes. have a question related to that, and it's a question that you probably knew was going to be asked because I've asked it of you before, and so now I can get you on record. <laughs> cool. Well, first I want to thank you for running those ads. I really appreciate it, even if I don't always say it. Oh, and, no, I, I, you, you say it quite often enough. That's, that's not a problem. But the question that you're not going to get out of, which is, <laughs> when do we have more Daikaiju attack stories? <laughs> oh, well, that is a good question indeed. I'll tell you right now, if everyone signs up for my, my Patreon, which is starts at a buck a month, mm. and after I finish Dr. Cushing, insists that the next thing I do is a sequel to Daikaiju Attack, well, I actually had three, four, five kind of sequel stories. Mm-hmm. Not ready kind of plotted and planned out in the, in the grand arc. Because one of the things I did with Daikaiju that obviously didn't get done with the movies at the time was I could think ahead. I could say, okay, after this one, what happens next? And then try to set up the grand arc, as it were, right. beforehand, which you didn't get to do when you were doing you know, King Kong versus Godzilla and then Mothra versus Godzilla and you know, Monster Zero and the other ones from that era that this daikaiju attack is based on before that happens it may actually get a name revision and and be called giant monsters attack because a lot of my brain trust including my friend tony isabella seems to think i might actually sell more of them (laughs) (laughs) not enough people know daikaiju means giant monster so yeah uh, yeah, he may be right there yeah that's true yep as much as uh, as much as we monster fans uh, know exactly what it means and know exactly what you're talking about, yeah, for a larger audience, you might wanna you might wanna revise. That's true. Right, but for for now, I'm working on Doctor Cushing's Chamber of Horrors, which is obviously a tribute to both Hammer and you know the classic Universal horror movies, and eventually you're going to get a, a werewolf and mummy and a vampire beating the hell out of each other in it. <laughs> but there's quite a bit of setup still going on for that. And uh, I'm, I'm probably, it's one of the longest books I've written, I think, by the time I'm done. And I'm, you know, a good chunk of it into it. And uh, still got a good chunk to go. So in terms of chapters, I'm about halfway through. But the later chapters are going to be much shorter than the earlier chapters. Because that's when people start pounding on each other and you drop them off of buildings into fiery pits. And it's like, well, don't give continue next away, damn it. chapter. I don't need well, to know yeah, that. that. I, I completely made that up. So. <laughs> well, thank God, because I'm still, I'm, still I'm chapters behind, and you're, you're you're messing things up for me. Don't do that. Yep. <laughs> All you got to know is that there will eventually be a big monster bash near the end. <laughs> you know, strangely enough, I kind of figured that. Yeah. Well, I hope everyone figures that, and I hope everyone that does figure it throws a, a buck at me or two bucks. If you give me two bucks, you get a month in advance. So. Yeah, it's uh, we call that the precognitive level. <laughs> Otherwise, you can, you can read it for free. <laughs> Just a month late. Well, so. to move away from Doctor Cushing for a moment and on to tonight's subject. Ha! Ah, my goodness, I'm going to assume that uh, you, Mister Sullivan, are mm-hmm. a uh, are a major Doctor Who fan. I, you know, yes. <laughs> there, it's it's hard to say because a lot of people that are fans of such things as Doctor Who and Star Trek are way more fanatical about it than I am. But yeah. there was a point in the, I suppose it was the early '90s, where I 
had watched every single one of the serials that existed at the time. They found new ones since. And the one of the local PBS stations, Channel 11 out of Chicago, was running them every Sunday night uh, as, like, movies. They cut out all the the inter credits in between the things and just ran them back to back to back, which yeah, usually they, uh, about they would an ram, hour they would ram yeah they would ram the entire serial together. They used they called it the omnibus format where they, you know, if it was a four part story, they just edited it together as a big ninety minute thing, and that's how most right. of us saw them originally. Yeah, well, and it worked really well. It was a it was a good way to see them. So. Yeah, yeah so at one point anymore. I'd seen them all, and now I'm at the point where I'm like, oh, God, which ones haven't I seen? And, <laughs> and how do I find them? Because now some of them are out of print, and they're insanely expensive and that kind of stuff. Yeah, so, well, you know how? <laughs> I can tell you exactly how. One, step one, buy a region-free DVD Region-free DVD player. <laughs> step two, sign on to your Amazon UK account. Step three, Realize that all the ones that are out of print over here and are ridiculously expensive are, are seven dollars in, in yeah in, exactly in they're kingdom, insanely yes. cheap over and in you Britain. can even buy them from Amazon US and and eBay as a matter of fact so that has definitely been kind of on my mind as maybe something to do yeah. but in any case so I've I've seen most of them and and that includes from the start right up through the Peter Capaldi ones that just finished. Well, I am a major Doctor Who fan. I became one. Um, I'm, I would assume it was sometime. It was sometime in the '80s. I can't nail it down precisely. And like all American fans, of course, the first Doctor Who that I saw was Tom Baker. Thoroughly enjoyed his yep. his adventures. I was seeing them on PBS at the time. Was introduced to them uh, by my stepmother. Really got a kick out of the show. Uh, as a matter of fact, there for a little while, it was kind of a family thing. We would uh, we would eat dinner and watch uh, Doctor Who on a Saturday night, which was, you know, awfully geeky of us. <laughs> but um, as I got older, I, I was able to, you know, they started putting them out on VHS, and you were able to see ones that, you know, you really had never had a chance to see. And uh, I have now seen just uh, as many as I can get my hands on. There are still a few that have been discovered in the past few years. And actually, there are still a few that... Um, uh, I'm not as familiar with and that I may have not seen. For instance, I think there's still a couple of uh, Sylvester McCoy stories that I've not yet seen. And right, yeah, the reception got really spotty around there. I moved from a place that had cable to a place that didn't. So there may be some McCoy ones that I've not seen mm. as well. The, uh, the, the joy is that I am a humongous fan of the original run of Doctor Who. I, f- I find it to be a phenomenally interesting show, even bad even bad stories, stories that don't measure up, uh, I still find a lot of joy in. I love the show. I love revisiting it. Um, there's nothing, I swear to you, there has been no happier geeky little Rodney in the world than when they have been turning up these uh, originally missing and now found uh, Patrick Troughton stories and been, been able to get them out. We've had uh, two of them in the past couple of years that turned up, that they found in vaults in various places. Nearly complete or complete, yeah. Yeah, well, like Web, Web awesome. of Fear, you know, Web of Fear, they found complete and stuff like that, and it's just amazing. I, I love. I still it. have not watched those because I've been waiting for the perfect moment. <laughs> the perfect moment hasn't, and because I've actually got them on on Apple and getting that to my my actual TV because I hate watching things on computer is difficult. But of yeah. course, now they've got them out on DVD, and I should probably just rebuy them. But <laughs> uh, yeah, before they're out of print, it's probably a good idea. 
Right. Yeah. Yeah. No. Because that, that's definitely a, definitely a problem. Well, but, and it's. But I am, I'm not even sure that you know since we're talking about the movies today. Yeah. Are the movies in print currently in the U.S.? You know, I don't think they are. That's something I looked at really quickly, and I would have to admit that unfortunately. <laughs> I don't think they are. That wonderful three-disc set that got put out by um, Anchor Bay, I believe it was. Yeah, um, maybe. It's the one I've got, and it's the two movies plus an extra disc. And yeah. it cost me under $15 at Best Buy when it came out. I think it might have been like 10 when I picked it up. And the last time I looked, it was like over $100. <laughs> yeah, which means... That, on Amazon, unfortunately, that means, sucker is well out of print, and yeah. That means I will never buy it. <laughs> so you didn't buy that uh, set? I did. Oh, okay. <laughs> I did. I bought it when it came out, and it was cheap. <laughs> exactly. You That's know? when I bought it. I, I I remember buying it at a Best Buy for an incredibly cheap price, and yeah, I think yeah, now it's out of print. And it's it was under 15. It price. may have actually been under 10. So we're sorry if you can't see it. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. I will point out that it, if uh, even if it's not something that you can see on DVD, which is a problem, I will grant you, um, it does appear that both Peter Cushing, uh, Doctor Who films, are available to watch on, say, ooh, Amazon Video. Awesome. They're rentable or buyable. You can buy it for six bucks. You can rent it for three. Uh, so if you want to see this movie, it is sitting there right there on Amazon Prime, happy, uh, Amazon for you to for you to stream. Uh, I don't know if it's available on other streaming services, but uh, believe me, that one is. They even have the uh, the Dalek Mania uh, documentary that was a part of that set as well. So uh, cool. Yeah. So if you oh, that's uh, good. That you can't complain about that. Then that's you know. No, and it's going to be Amazon streaming is going to be a much better picture than you're going to get if uh, someone say uploaded it to YouTube, which would you know is always like oh it's on YouTube oh look it sucks the picture is horrible <laughs> picture is horrible <laughs> there's the occasion I will I watch a few things on on uh, on YouTube you know when you you know you when you have no other choice there's always YouTube exactly and, uh, and that's that's all well and good there have been the occasional prints on YouTube that I've been very pleased with but yeah. So yep. In most cases, it's a much. I treat YouTube much the way I used to treat VHS bootlegs, which is, well, I want to see it. If this is the only way I can see it, if this is the only way I can see this Nashy film, I'm gonna. This is how I'm gonna do it. Now, I I wonder if, you know, I'm. 57 now i'm gonna be 58 next month so i'm i'm not insanely old but i'm not insanely young anymore <laughs> but, but i wonder part of me wonders if people today are who are younger than me are willing to put up with crap video and watch something because when i was growing up you would sit four inches away from a television fiddling with a uhf antenna staring through the snow to see a movie you'd never seen before. Yeah. In fact, the first time I saw Doctor Who was on, I think it was Channel 27 in Worcester, which was a long way from, in terms of radio transmission or television transmission from the Boston area where I lived, and literally had to fiddle with the the antenna. And all I could see, I remember the police box and a white-haired guy kind of walking around the outside the police box. So I know it was either... You know, it was either John Pertwee or it was William Hartnell, mm -hmm. but I don't know which it was. And 
that's all I remember being able to see, and I don't remember if I could hear any sound, but I was so thrilled to be able to see Doctor Who at all, because I'd read about in Famous Monsters of Filmland, because Forry Ackerman was the god of all cool things in the world, that it was like, oh my god, here's Doctor Who that was in Famous Monsters of Filmland, and I can't ever quite see it and if you, if the atmospherics were right and you pointed the antenna right you could actually hear something and see it but <laughs> if you love these things growing up in the you know the late 60s and the early 70s you were willing to put up with a lot of shit to see them <laughs> oh god yeah man the the number of things the number of times i sat crouched in front of a black and white television screen in my room with the sound turned just high enough to be able to discern what's actually being said oh yeah oh right. yeah right yeah or you're you're hearing it through Sorry, you know, it's like you're getting break up in the picture and the sound, the horizontal and vertical holes are rolling. <laughs> you're, you're twisting that dial just a little bit to try to get it in better. Oh, fiddling, anyway, fiddling with rabbit ears. Oh, the madness. Compared to that, YouTube is wonderful mostly. Yeah. But part of me wonders if, if people that are used to, for, you know, 2K, 4K resolution HD on their TVs, <laughs> if, they're, if they'll just turn off a crappy print and saying, ah, screw it, I don't want to see that. Because it's certainly frustrating to me. It's like, that's the best print you got of this? Come on. <laughs> I will still don't. suffer through it, though, if I have to. If I have to, and oh, it's yeah. the only way to see it, that's how I'm going to see it. I don't care. Yep. But yep. here's the thing. Since we are both avowed Doctor Who fans, I will confess just briefly that uh, I've only been able... I'm not up to date on the new Doctor Who stuff because, unfortunately, I can't watch very much of it before I feel like I'm seeing the same damn story again and again. And um, <laughs> I've not seen any of the Peter Capaldi stuff. And oh, he's, my, he's one of my new favorites, actually. Oh, and, and, and I may eventually love him as soon as I see some of him. But like I say, I just I don't like the hour-long format. I don't like every third uh, story taking place in modern-day London again. And um, <laughs> it, it just it irritates me to no end. And uh, so I can only tolerate it for so long before I just punch out for a whole nother 18 months and just not even think about it again while I wallow in the joys of the old Doctor Who. <laughs> so, <laughs> Well, there's so much more of it still at this point. You know, it was funny. In, order, in addition to watching this, I watching the film for this. I And the film is Doctor Who and the Daleks. I don't think we've said that before. Yeah, let, let, me, let me stress right up front. Uh, this, this is, uh, we're going to be talking tonight about the very first of the, uh, the Doctor Who color films made. Uh, this one is Doctor Who and the Daleks. that came out in 1965. Uh, there were two of these. We're only going to, we're going to try to restrain ourselves and only talk about the first one tonight with the idea that we will talk about the second sometime in the future because I think there's enough juice in both of these movies to, to, to talk about them at length. Um, this was uh, the the decision to bring Doctor Who to the big screen, to do it in color, because at the time, of course, all of the all of the stories produced in the '60s were uh, done in black and white, and um, on rather meager budgets. What a right. shock! And uh, I don't think anybody's surprised by that particular bit of information. Yeah, uh, but they actually, you know, it's interesting because I, I did I watched the movie. Then I watched the original serial, right? And then I I read about it, and it's funny to think that the stuff I was reading was actually done around the twentieth anniversary of Doctor Who, which is now like thirty years ago. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah. Just like, so this has been going on. 
the point is there's a lot of Doctor Who and it's been going on a long time and even with the ones they've lost which sadly most of those are still from the Troughton era I know I my favorite Doctor there's still a whole lot of Doctor Who to see and it's yes the budgets are low but the stories are so creative and they tackle them in such a, a straightforward and serious manner that it's it's a wonderful thing and i hardly rick as you said i think there aren't any that i really hate there yeah. are ones i don't like as well but generally if if doctor who were still running on tv it's one of those shows like the original star trek or dark shadows that if it's on i would watch it you know i just have it on in the background whether you know no matter which of the many doctors it is at this point Yep. Yep. And here's the thing. I mean, one of the first things we should state up front is that there are a large number of people who, even though they may be uh, huge fans of the old Doctor Who series, uh, the original run, um, they may not actually have much love in their heart for the two color films produced in the mid 60s uh, that starred Peter Cushing as Doctor Who. Um, that's because really um, they don't. <laughs> The, the Doctor Who in these films is not the Doctor Who in the television series. He really is not. Right. And the, it's not, and that's a, a decision they made when they decided to adapt it for the big screen. Mm -hmm. And there's some indication that they made the changes they did because they wanted to sell this in America as well as the UK. And no one in America had any idea who Doctor Who was. Certainly, I, you know, I old enough to have been alive during the entire run of Doctor Who, but I never heard heard of it even until Fauri Ackerman mentioned it in Famous Monsters, right. which was probably sometime between 68 and 72. So, you know, and, and by then I'd already watched the entire run of Dark Shadows and stuff like that. So, you know, so I was into it and I'd never heard of it. And so there was some indication that that maybe that's the reason that they made the changes that they did. For what for whatever reason that they definitely settled into it, I think it's fascinating that what they what they knew they were going to be able to do is since Doctor Who was a black and white product on television, they were going to be able to bring color to it, which was going to, you know, hopefully get butts on seats. But also, they were going to be including what was already at that time in 1965 evident to be a massive breakout kind of cultural phenomenon, which is the the villain characters of the Daleks. So right. what they were doing was they were just, uh, as you mentioned, they were just going to adapt the uh, the serial the the Daleks, uh, the very the the very first Doctor Who story that involved the Daleks, written by um, Terry, uh, Nation. Terry Nation, who uh, wrote a number of excellent Doctor Who uh, stories. Right, um, and obviously created the Daleks. Yep, and was clever enough to actually get the merchandising rights or, or a huge chunk of the merchandising rights. So, which later on, to my understanding, actually kept the Daleks from being used as much as they might have been if he wasn't involved with them. Yeah, well, but remember, at the time... Good for him. He, he, yes, <laughs> he, he, he did make a lot of very smart moves, and he wrote a lot of good stories, uh, but he sold uh, the rights for the, for the story to be pr produced on film for 500 pounds. Right. Which, Which even in 1966 was not a lot of money. No. 65. <laughs> but we're glad he did because at least they produced this film. Now, uh, one of the other things that they did is they decided since uh, we're 
turning this into a big spectacle, and that was going to be one of the things they were definitely selling, is they were going to be putting it in color, and they were going to make it a big spectacle. They shot it very widescreen. It's very wide. It's like 2.35 to 1. It's a very mm-hmm. wide image, and it uh, meant that... Uh, they were going to ha- i mean they were going to have to spend a fair amount of money because when you have a, a sequence when you have a film that's shot that wide and you have sequences that involve these kind of dark haunted forests and these large supposedly metal cities uh, you've got to fill that image up and uh, so they spent a fair amount they had a pretty decent budget on this it was 180,000 pounds which is a fair amount of money for those days right you got to figure the british pounds were between 2 and th- 2 and 3 dollars to the pound at the mm-hmm. time so you know, it's, what did you say the cost was? was One hundred eighty thousand. Like, yeah. So you know, just on a rough guess, it's a half a million dollars or more. Pretty much. Which is not a, not a bad budget, not a big budget certainly for the time, but not a bad budget. Now they they went out of their way to make sure that they were presenting something that looked impressive. Uh, now they they were smart about it. I, I love the fact that the the rather impressive Dalek City. Uh, was constructed entirely from plastic, so uh, uh, w- w- which you know makes perfect sense. I mean, because it looks like metal and plastic, and there's very little metal involved. It's pretty much all right. plastic. So, yeah, me- metal, I, I have metal, very and painted mixed feelings wood. about that. Of the two movies, this is I like the other one better than I like this one, and I can and understand I think that. There are some choices. There are choices that they made in this that I don't think are the strongest choices they could make. The second one is, in, in my memory anyway, much closer to the source material. And this one, it just uh, <laughs> plastic. They're gonna make all the sets out of plastic, which is something they were really proud of at and, the and time. It, because at the time that at the time that was the kind of thing that had not been done before. Right. Right. And that and that's kind of cool, but at the same time, as we look at it from our point of view, it all looks a little plastic, <laughs> and plastic is kind of not what we associated with with kind of a, a high end, high quality film. But I have you to know? say, when I look at it, when I look at it today, part of the, I guess, part of the kitsch value or just some of the joy that I get from it is that rather odd look because. I it, things don't look that way on film anymore. Things don't look that way. They, right. Things didn't look that way very often in movies back then either. So right, yeah, no, it's it's kind of yeah. I don't want to take this comparison too far, but it, in some ways, it's kind of like the same bright color saturation that you get on the old Batman show. This is not done as a comedy, though there are comedy elements, but there's still the film stock that was used at the time was really really good for bright colors and honestly i wish we i wish there were more films and television shows that had the that kind of color that we got in the in the 60s films and this is a this is a very colorful film all the daleks are many different colors and it's it's really cool to see them rolling across the screen yep and you know oh look there's a there's a blue one and there's a red one and there's a you know a Gold one well, and holy well, cow. Listen, Look, I would like to uh, point out that you just said that this film isn't much of a comedy, but um, I would have to say that uh, producer and uh, co-screenwriter Milton Sabotsky might have had something to say about that because he described it as a science fiction comedy. I would just like to say, thank God that's not completely true. Right, and that's <laughs> the part that I don't think, for me, that's the one of the weakest parts about this adaptation. And I'm assuming you're going to uh, single out, as I think is probably a good idea, Roy Castle, the fellow who plays Ian in the film. 
Right. And um, I, I'm going to say right up front, I very much prefer the Ian of the television series. Uh, and I do, too. And the Barbara of the television series, too, although the Barbara in this film is not that bad. Oh, she's not that bad, and she is also aggressively cute. So. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah, she's very cute. <laughs> yes, yes, she is. But that is but, how they kind of viewed this, and viewed this film it was that they were going to... Instead of be serious the way the television series was, they were going to inject humor into it. And I'm glad that the way they injected humor at least was by simply having a character in the film who was occasionally, quote unquote, funny. So, right. You know, who a, either encountered something that he. Character. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that, that's much more tolerable to me as a viewer than it would be to suddenly be having the Daleks do something goofy or stupid or dumb. Or, well, it's. it's- it's much more tolerable to me than, say, the approach that they took with the Land of the Lost yeah, yeah. movie, in which, you know, I don't know what they were thinking because I listened to the director commentary and they said all the right stuff, but they made took a cool kids science fiction TV show and they made it into a buffoon comedy. And boy, does that piss me off. <laughs> well, see, here's the thing. I've never seen... And here, you have a buffoon character. Yeah. Which is, but like I say, they incorporate still... him just fine because everybody else is, I mean, they, they could have very easily, and this is what I would have feared at the time in the 60s, if I had read the producer and script writer of the movie say it's going to be a science fiction comedy. I, I would have thought, oh my God, they're going to turn Doctor Who into some doddering moron. And that is right. not what they do, thank goodness. That is not what right. they've done. some of the some of the differences in between the original serial and the movie starting with the good idea Go the ahead. characters and their relationships For, let's so, start with uh, let's start with doctor who uh in the television serial now 
I will want I do want to preface this with things we know now that they did not know then. <laughs> okay. Or they did not have codified perhaps right. as much right. then. The idea in the series always did seem to be that Doctor Who was probably, if not definitely, an alien. Okay? So that's cool, that's fine, that's dandy. We know that for sure now, but back in the 60s it wasn't spelled out. Right. As, as it is now. But in the film they went a very different direction. He so is Doctor not, Who is, yeah. he is an alien, and he is never called Doctor Who. He is called the Doctor. Right. And the joke is Doctor Who, right? Because he never says. In the original, it is the Doctor and his granddaughter. And they've maintained that in the film. But in the film, he is Doctor Who. That's his name. And his his granddaughter, Susan, which is the same character name as in the thing. And his other granddaughter, Barbara, and her boyfriend, Ian. Now, in the show, there is Barbara and Ian. But Barbara and Ian were teachers at the school where Susan went to school, which is now actually a school that's being used in, or has been used in some of the Doctor Who spinoffs in recent years. And they're concerned about this girl because she's so odd. Yes. (laughs) An unearthly child was the name of the first serial. And she's unearthly because she's insanely smart and seems to live in a junkyard with her grandfather and somehow the teachers in trying to check up on the child get swept into adventures with the doctor and his alien granddaughter. But in this doctor who becomes played by Peter Cushing becomes basically a a mad scientist or an an eccentric scientist at the very least. Yeah. Right. And his, his daughter, his granddaughter is still his granddaughter, but he's got one of the teachers is now his other granddaughter. And the other teacher is, I don't even remember if he's given a job or not, but he's the boyfriend of the older granddaughter. So that, that changes kind of the basic otherworldly weird dynamic of how Doctor Who works. And that was, according to things I've read and, and, and heard in the commentaries, that they decided to change that because they thought the other idea was just too complicated for U.S. audiences who had, had no familiarity with it. And they thought, well, this is an easy way to go. And I have to so, say, they they may have been right. Yeah, in some ways, they certainly were right. Though I think in, in another way, they kind of overplayed the simplification, too. So, But on the other hand, if that's what it takes to get it out of the small screen and into a, a, you know, a relatively decent budget movie in full color widescreen mm-hmm. then you know you got to make compromises I, I know people hate to hate to see that and and hear that today especially you know when we've got people remaking movies left and right and relaunching universes and all that kind of stuff but there are <laughs> there are realities to making films when you're spending a lot of money on them that <laughs> you just Okay, you can't just get anybody. You've got to get Tom Cruise for the lead, or you've got to get some other Charlize Theron, or you've got to get someone with box office value out there on the screen. Yeah. And in 1965, the box office value was Peter Cushing. Who, oh, certainly, yes. Who, you know, in 
when asked about this, he, he was always like, well, I've no idea why they didn't uh, ask Bill Hartnell to do the do the character on screen. But, you know, I mean, there was a thing he was up for that Hartnell got, and Hartnell should have been in this, and he got it. And, you know, that's just the way the movies and acting works sometimes. So, Well, the, the but, good news is, I mean, he was an excellent choice to play the character. I mean, yeah. besides the fact that Peter Cushing probably could have played almost anything, uh, he, he was a box office draw at the time. He was by then quite well known for that slew of excellent hammer horror films that he was uh, well known for being in by that time. So he was a bankable star, at least in Britain, and was also very well known to a certain degree and to a certain audience in America. So he was a fine choice to play the role. And so since we have him in place and he's right for the role, um, it's, it's, it's one of the joys of the film, I think, to know that, yeah, okay, so it's not the Doctor Who that we all know and love from the television series. It's this kind of secondary, tertiary kind of side road you know, thing. It's like an alternate universe Doctor Who. Yeah, and that's the In best which way to look at it. he's a human being. <laughs> yeah, where he's a human being who somehow, somehow is able to create a TARDIS called just TARDIS in this. Uh, and uh, somehow able to make it larger on the inside than on the outside, which is something that really, honestly, you know, you got to be an amazing scientist to figure that one out, right? But right. then, of course, he's also able to make a, an easily screw upable science device that travels you to anywhere in time and space. So right. <laughs> clearly, leaves, uh, clearly leaves a, a big genius. lever that you can stumble against and send them someplace entirely unintended. Anytime you have a, a comedic character or one that is uh, obviously clumsy, keep him away from dangerous spots and levers. Right. Absolutely. But so, they don't. No, no, they don't. So they end <laughs> up, so, uh, Doctor Who and his two granddaughters, uh, Susan and Barbara, end up with uh, the comically befuddled Ian uh, transported to another planet. Um, and I love the fact that we... We never know because it's not really part of the story. We never know if this is in the far future, the far past, if it was, if it's in the current day. This never that's never uh, talked about because I guess it really doesn't matter. Doesn't but, matter for the story. Doesn't no, it matter. Doesn't for matter the at film. all. But we're in a a large kind of petrified forest, um, and it's clear that this planet has seen in the dim past, if not too far in the background, uh, a really horrible war, possibly and probably nuclear. Now, of course, I love this. One of the things I love about Doctor Who in general, and this film uh, takes this element from the original teleplay by Terry Nation and folds it right into the film, which is something I, I, I thought was very interesting because I thought they could have probably written around this element because it's a little dark. Uh, the whole nuclear uh, war in the past and the element of... The humans walking around, Doctor Who and his companions, walking around this place, slowly realizing that they're getting sick. And realizing that what they're getting sick from is radiation poisoning. Right. And that, to me, is such a dark little thing, especially during the Cold War, during the 1960s. I mean, that's... That's probably why it's there. You think so? Yeah, I do. Because, you know, Terry Nation certainly 
knew what he was doing in terms of trying to underlay themes and ideas into this. Oh, and I agree the, as far as the, the original idea story. That nuclear war is bad. Yeah, yeah. I agree completely <laughs> with that being there in the original story. I just thought my th- my thinking is that in the film they might have found a way to leave that element out or to make it be something other than radiation poison because man that's a dark element to put into a story that's ostensibly aimed at kids. Right. But, yeah, it is, but you know, those of us that were kids growing up in that era, we're we were aware of it. You yeah, know, yeah. I I don't really remember doing duck and cover drills, so I'm not quite that old, but but knew where the hell the radiation shelters were and stuff in the schools, <laughs> where you're supposed to go. You know, I didn't grow up in a place like my wife did, where there were tornadoes, so you had to go, you know, go to the tornado shelters and stuff. But you know, all the schools that I remember going to as a kid had the radiation shelter sign with you know like down that way go there it's down under the gym or wherever it happened to be so it's you know in in some sense it seems very grim now when you know aside from recent political nuttiness going on with north korea nuclear war seems very distant for people and has since the the end of the, the end of the cold war but back then you know maybe maybe not as grim as it seems now, but I, I understand what you're saying. It, it is radiation poisoning is not usually in kids' stories. No, it's <laughs> or if not. it is, it's like in in some ways it's like in this and in the in Mothra versus Godzilla or Godzilla versus the Thing, depending upon which title you prefer. They they get radiation poisoning in in that the two main characters and and as in Doctor No, they kind of take them into a lab and scrub them down and and check them out and they're like, okay, you're fine now. <laughs> You were covered in radiation, but now you're okay. Don't worry. Now you've bathed and lightly toweled off, so you're fine. Right, yeah. Which is better than not acknowledging it at all. (laughs) Agreed, agreed. Well, uh, Doctor Who in this, as he does in the the, the television version of the story, he fakes a kind of flaw in the TARDIS that they're going to have to go to the the distant Dalek city to uh, fix... Uh, it's not true. He's he's faking it in both instances. The the the, the, the fakes the, a mechanical failure. Yeah, yeah. So that uh, because he really wants to uh, explore the the city in the distance, and the others are kind of against it because they'd really much rather go home because you know this is kind of weird. Let's get weird out of alien here. Planet. <laughs> yeah. Someone um, knocking on the door and disappearing. And then What's they, going on here? Yeah, well, someone does knock on the TARDIS door. They go outside, no one's there, and there's this little package of uh, something they can't figure out. It's uh, what appears to be uh, uh, fluid in, vi- in glass vials. And, uh, of course, that is what turns out to be the, the, the medicine radiation necessary to keep them from dying kid. of radiation poisoning. So... Um, that means, of course, that yes, much like the original story, what we have here is a planet that has been divided into uh, these creatures that have uh, succumbed to, uh, well, both both of these races have uh, succumbed to radiation poisoning in one form or another. And in the Daleks' case, they have encased themselves in these metal bodies that uh, cannot handle stairs. And... Um, <laughs> Oh, did I say that? I'm, so, I'm sorry. I didn't Not mean to say that. anyway. I didn't say that. Uh, they, they, they're, let's just say they're big fans of ramps. And right. uh, then there are like the little thongs. rolling tanks, kind of. Yeah. That are, if you haven't seen them, they've been described as like salt shakers or pepper pots or something like that, which is. You know, not a not a terrible analogy, but honestly, Daleks are just cool looking. <laughs> They're just Agreed. awesome. 
They are they're they're amazing creations, and there's a reason that they are so iconic and have had such an, a a long life on the the television show and even outside the television show. I think that there are people who probably know almost nothing about Doctor Who, who, if you showed them a picture of a Dalek, would at least have an idea of what it was. Right. The iconic Daleks. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so there are two, as you were saying, there, the, the race on this planet is split into two. The, the city-dwelling Daleks, who are in their little armored tank-like devices, and, and the Thals, who are you know, kind of tall, blonde Nordic people who have to take radiation poisoning drugs because they live out in the wasteland. And are incredibly even-tempered for a people who whose lives are so, I mean, I mean, clearly, objectively, rough. So Right. They're they're basically pacifists. And yeah. it's you know, and that's that's kind of made really really clear in the original serial and it's pretty clear here too that they're just, you know, they've decided the best way to survive is not to fight anymore. And in 1965, that was a pretty, pretty strong message that just in and of itself. Well, um, we see the Daleks kind of covertly observing, um, everybody. They, they, they get captured. Of course they go into the city, uh, Dr. Who and his companions, they, they all get captured by the Daleks. The, the Daleks, uh, take the piece, the called the fluid link that, uh, Doctor Who has uh, carried with them outside of the TARDIS, claiming that that is something that they need to refill it with mercury, and that's his kind of uh, BS story to get them into the city so they can look around. Uh, so that gets seized by the Daleks. So immediately, anyone paying attention to plot concepts knows that oh well, they're going to even be able to leave now. They've got to be able to reclaim that. Uh, Doctor Who realizes that the group. Uh, are developing radiation sickness at this point, and that the drugs they discovered earlier may be their only hope of survival. Now we see the Daleks uh, watching their captives while they've got them locked up. Um, and this is where we learn all of the backstory about the radiation and uh, the Daleks being trapped inside their, their little pepper pot machinery. Uh, hearing the, the captives discuss the drugs, the Daleks uh, visit the cell with a proposal. If the humans will bring the drugs they found to them, they'll allow them enough to treat themselves because the Daleks want to be able to examine the drugs uh, to see if they would be viable for the Daleks to use. Because they can't live outside of the city because of the radiation. Right. So Susan, That's part of what they say anyway. Right. So Susan volunteers to go, being the only one still strong enough to undertake the task, and that makes a lot of sense. She's the youngest. Yeah, she's like... 12 or 13, I think, in in this incarnation, as opposed to the 15-year-old being played by a (laughs) 22-year-old in in the TV show. (laughs) Exactly. That is, I thought it was interesting that they they altered the age of Susan. They made her much younger, well, not much younger, but younger enough for it to be a very different type of character. Right. Now, when she reaches the TARDIS, or I should just say, in this case, when she reaches TARDIS, uh, <laughs> Susan encounters uh, Aladon, the leader of the few remaining Thals. That's the uh, the other species that fought the Daleks in the catastrophic atomic war centuries previous. Uh, Aladon gives Susan a second container of the anti-ra- anti-radiation drugs to use if the Daleks fail to keep their promise to let them use it. And uh, he gives her a cape as well. Now, you might think it's kind of weird that he gives her this big plastic uh, shower curtain, but uh, it actually comes in handy later on. Uh, when Susan returns to the Daleks, uh, they discover the second drug supply, but allow the humans to treat themselves with it. So, 
yay, they're not going to die from radiation sickness. Right, the Daleks aren't just going to kill them out of hand. They maybe decided that they these people might be of some further use to us if we let them live. Exactly. Uh, did we mention the Daleks are ruthless and that their known catchphrase nowadays is exterminate? Which they so do say a few they, times in this, but they do. I do. I do find that um, the Daleks seems they seem to have lost a lot of their vocabulary depending on who was writing the screenplay. So, <laughs> yes, it's a very it's a yeah. quite variable. It, yeah, it is. It, it is. <laughs> well, Susan explains to the other the other uh, people in the uh, in the little cell there. She explains to everybody else that according to Aladon, the Thal crops have failed, and they've come to the Dalek city hoping to trade the anti radiation drug formula for food. Um, again, the Daleks overhear this conversation. Of course, at this point, our captives are unaware that they're being listened to by the Daleks. And the Daleks decide that they don't need the Thals now that they have a sample of the drug. They get Susan to write a letter, which they will leave for the Thals, stating that they want to end all the hostilities and will provide food to the Thals if, uh, to be collected from the city uh, as an act of friendship. When Susan finishes the letter, the Daleks reveal that they plan to ambush and kill all of the Thals when they arrive. And I, I, I just have to say, you know you're in a story that's being chopped down pretty hard when your villain uh, immediately just tells you, oh, and by the way, we're going to kill them all. <laughs> yep. you, you, know, you know that uh, we're having to take some storytelling shortcuts because right, that yeah. means that your villain is a moron. So, Well, and this was, and it's interesting to note, that this was a seven-part serial, and every part was about 25 minutes. Right. So basically, we're looking at the original version of this. If you just tacked it all together as a movie, it's like three and a half hours, if my right. math is right. <laughs> Which means they're having to leave out just tons and tons of detail. And, right. Uh, and character bits and um, just you know really interesting bits of business along the way. And, you know, because this film's running time is only 82 minutes. I mean, they, right. you know, this was going to be under 90 minutes regardless because this is, you know, this is an exploitation film. This is the kind of thing, you know, this is not a, this is not an epic. So, and it's, it's funny that even at that abbreviated length, there are, there are definitely times when the scenes seem still a little too long in places, which is, I, I can't completely account for that. <laughs> well, I sure. would say that the only times. There, there are two things in the film that I that I, I can agree with that assessment in only two ways, which is uh, I do feel that uh, later on the the trip, um, in the, the the trip that several of the characters take in the to into the city, the kind of back way, I feel that yes. sequence is a little over long. Right, um, it feels more tedious than than dangerous and exciting. But I would point out that the reason we may feel that way is that um, we were kind of cheated out of one of the things that was going to be in that segment. They keep talking repeatedly in this movie about the mutants that live out in that forest and in the and in the and then the lake and all this that and the other. Well, we were supposed to get a look at some of those monsters and mutations in that great big lake, uh, but they and there are a couple different stories about this. Um, you can believe which one you want to. So it was either they had something built and they had it ready to go, but nobody liked the way it looked. It looked just so terrible they decided to not use it. Or you can go with the they filmed it and it looked absolutely god-awful after the fact and they decided to edit out of the movie. There are hints of either one of those when you watch the film. It could have been yes. either way. 
there's I mean there's even a, a kind of a third story where they they started kind of constructing what they were going to use and even at that point they decided to call it off and it's like I don't really I don't I don't know I, I don't know which of these stories to believe because you kind of get you, you get varying degrees of of whether or not this happened that way or not but that's one of the reasons why that segment may feel the way I seem to feel about it which is it, it just it's too long and there's not enough happening in it yes yeah there, there's right. not enough juice. And, uh, Although I, I have to say, when I rewatched this for the second time, the spots that I kind of seemed long and, and somewhat boring to me seemed less that way hmm. than they did the first time I watched them. And I actually watched I watched this twice in the last couple of days, once straight on, and then I watched the serial in the middle, and then I watched the commentary on the movie. Right. And the second time I watched the movie with the commentary, even though I wasn't hearing all the acting... Some of the things that bothered me about the movie when I first saw it kind of fell away, including the plastic sets. <laughs> yeah, like, I like uh, those plastic sets. I mean, I really do. I think they look suitably odd and strange. And like I say, there is a there is a kitsch factor, the '60s right. colorful kitsch factor that I get a kick out of. So, despite they're pretty cool in a lot of places, even though there's a you know there's a part of the set that looks like shower curtains and stuff. Yeah, and there is there are lava lamps. There are what are now oh, completely recognizable sitting on top of our table upstairs as, you I know, about children the of the 60s. There are lava lamps. Yeah, I as know. As soon as I spotted the lava lamps, machiner. I was just sitting there going, oh, my God, those are lava lamps. I can't believe, yeah, we're definitely in the 60s. Right, yeah. And they're, and that's part of the Dalek machinery. Anyway, back, getting back <laughs> to your synopsis. Oh, well, um, well like, um, so what we have then is... Um, Realizing that the Daleks can see and overhear them inside their little uh, prison room there via a wall-mounted device, uh, the the uh, travelers dis- disable it and then hatch an escape plan. They wait for a Dalek who's gathering, uh, who, who arrives to uh, deliver food. They uh, smear some of the rather disgusting-looking paste-like food that they're being fed into the uh, into the eye of the Dalek uh, and then force it. Uh, onto the uh, onto the thaw cape, the kind of shower curtain looking thing on the floor, which insulates it from the metal floor, which keeps it from being able to derive power because they've figured out that that's how the uh, the the Daleks power themselves in the city. They're actually in contact with the metal floor and they kind of con- they they draw le- elec- electricity through the floor and through the walls and everything like that. Right, which is what powers their little machines. It's like they, I think they even say they're like Dodgem cars, or which is what we would call bumper cars. Bumper cars, yeah. In the U.S. Well, once free, and that's kind of a cool idea. Oh, that that does come, you know, f- directly from the original serial as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it's pretty smart because it's one of those things that not only Terry Nation but a lot of Doctor Who writers did, which is that they wanted to be able to demonstrate that their characters, their good guys, were smart and that they were thinking their way out of problems. And so what you have here is uh, people you know, trapped in a prison cell with very few, uh, very few things at their disposal, very few tools to be able to use, and so they have, to, they have to think around the problem. They have to figure it out, come at it from a different angle. They can't use strength. They can't use power. They can't use force. So they use what they have. And uh, that's always something that's... It's a, it's a hallmark of my a lot of my favorite Doctor Who stories, and this is no exception. Right. Doctor Who is a brainy character. And one of the things I liked in this is even though they gave him another granddaughter, all three of the, the Who characters 
even though they all have different last names. They're all, you know, Barbara and Susan are both really, really smart. Yeah. And Ian is the, you know, the former teacher and who knows what he is in this, is the kind of stupid bumbling one. The rest of them are all, they're all brainiacs, which is cool. Yeah, and that's something that I really liked about. That's something that was very, very good about uh, most of the female companions in the entire run of the original Doctor Who was that most of the time, the women in Doctor Who in general, uh, not in every case, but in general, are not just fantastic characters, but are often the intellectual equal, if not the intellectual superior of the men around them. And that's something that I've always thought was wonderfully refreshing and a, and a real joy to point out to people because these were shows and characters that were attempting to uh, broaden the idea of what a hero was. And uh, they didn't spell this out. They didn't make a you know they didn't go running around screaming about the fact that that's what they were doing. But it's very hard to watch the original run of Doctor Who and not get the idea very clearly that heroes come in all shapes, forms, genders, colors. Ages. Yeah, exactly. And uh, it was a real joy to see that being played out in this movie as well, where you have four main characters. One of them is the mad scientist who is very clever and very smart, but occasionally, you know, has, you know, is it, it, there's a reason he has those, those granddaughters around. I think he kind of needs a little help every now and then. Right. And then you have the two granddaughters, one of whom is genius level and the other who is incredibly intelligent. And right, and they even show that in the opening scene where they pan across the living room where they're all living and yep. the little girl is reading a heavy science book. <laughs> yep. And then the, the older granddaughter is reading another science book and then the doctor is kind of reading a mad science book. No, he's reading his, comics. His he's actually, reading the comics. His actually is much lighter reading, though it has spaceships and that kind of stuff. It's like they're looking at really really sciencey things and he's reading something much lighter than that and that's that was i found that like a really amusing start it was great anyway so there well, any it's nice that all the characters that all the members of the the family in this are are smart and they make no apologies for it no of course not because this was uh this was one of the uh the defining characteristics of what it was to to be a hero is that you were smart you weren't someone who blundered along and did stupid things Right. Unlike Ian. Unlike Ian, exactly. (laughs) Who's the reason they're there. Right. Well, uh, Ian then removes the the Dalek creature from its casing. Uh, After they've uh, deprived it of its power, they're able to pop it open. A little too easy, in my opinion, but that's always been true in in Doctor Who when you're dealing with Daleks. It's like, man, don't they latch that thing down a little harder? (laughs) They don't have any hands to latch it from the inside. Yeah, maybe so. Well, they, they, they... pull the creature from the casing and, and he uses his uh, he uses a jacket or does he i forget what they use exactly it's the cloak kind of, it's actually they it's the take cloak? the cloak yeah. okay which and, is weird because you'd think they'd still needed it to cut the power supply at that point but and they do that in the serial too it's like okay yeah the cloak is like a blanket it's i mean it's a big cloak and they pick up the creature well, they, yeah, they, they pull it out of its casing and kind of put it on the floor. And at that point in time, you may think, well, damn it, we're not going to get a look at what this sucker looks like? Well, you kind of get a look at it after they leave the room. Because this, this green kind of scaly kind of creature from the Black Lagoon looking paw creeps out from underneath that, that shower three, curtain. Three fingers. Yep. And yep. it's a small creature. It's obviously it's, you know, the size of a basketball. 
or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's not a very big thing. Anyway, so you do get to see it as it as it apparently dies, and it, it's the same as the cereal. It's take it out of the machine and it dies. Well, then they they stick Ian inside the uh, the Daleks the Dalek machinery there, so that they can roll him along as they escape, pretending whenever they get challenged by other Daleks to be uh, quote unquote taking the captives somewhere for questioning. Well, once free, the, the travelers are able to uh, shout a warning to the Thals who are entering the city to try to warn them to stay out that the plan is for the Daleks to kill them. They, uh, they, they escape into the jungle, but not before one of the Thals is killed by the Daleks. Which uh, is the actually the only death, I think, in this whole film. Wow, is it? You may be, yeah. wow, you may be right. I, I had not thought about that, but I, yeah, I think it is. Yeah. Which is weird, because one of the things I read was that the producers, when they decided to do the second movie, the producers had gotten so many complaints that the Daleks hadn't killed enough people that the second movie is just filled with the Daleks <laughs> killing people. <laughs> I can't <laughs> wait like, to rewatch I'm, that second one. <laughs> I'm so, yeah, I'm looking forward to it, too. <laughs> oh, man. Anyway, okay. so It's um, nice to know the kids in 1965 had their priorities straight. Yeah, why aren't Daleks murdering people? Yeah, who didn't kill enough people? I mean, and there's, it's true. There are more people, more far more people die in the serial than die oh, in well, this, yeah. this shortened version. It's a freaking slaughter, if memory serves. Yeah, no, it's not not as bad as the the slaughter in the next film, but <laughs> yeah, but they they kill more than a few, and, and one kills himself, and it's really it's an interesting serial. And uh, I, it's funny, you know, I was saying that the movie felt slow in places. Watched three and a half hours of the serial and. I was surprised that, that it didn't really drag for me. Now, you know, I have a high tolerance for 1960s TV shows, but I, I like the fact that every every episode of the serial had kind of its own little arc within it. Yeah. And that seemed to really keep it all moving across a whole three and a half hours. Well, that's one so. of the joys. That's why I... Uh I absolutely, it's one of the, the great thrills for me. That's why I love watching older Doctor Who, because now, of course, the only way you get to see them, they don't, they don't like they did in the early days of VHS, they don't put those omnibus edited together versions out anymore. You're able to actually watch them in their original serialized format. And for me, that is the most wonderful thing in the world, because it allows you to uh, take a five or six or seven part series and divide it up into chunks. You can do one a day. You can do a couple a night. You can you can divide it up and watch it at whatever speed that you right. wish. And, and therefore, you can binge them if you want. Yeah, and you can get the maximum amount of enjoyment out of it. And you're not nailed down to, okay, well, I'm going to watch this Doctor Who story. Oh, holy crap, it's going to take three hours. No, it doesn't because it has built-in stop spots. It has right. it has chapters, you know. Right. And that's I that's what that is another thing that I just really like about the old Doctor Who stuff. No, I'm I'm very fond of serials as a a format, which should be really obvious because I'm writing a serialized monster story online yeah, right now. Yeah, that and would have been uh, the last eighteen months or whatever it is. <laughs> would seem obvious. Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, I like I like serials. Serials are awesome. Okay. Okay, well, at this point, the Daleks test the Thal anti-radiation drug on a few of their number and find that uh, it does not work. In fact, it's rather disastrous. Uh, there are a number of side effects that uh, basically just uh, the Daleks are not going to be able to use this stuff. It's they not... basically go mad and self-destruct, which yeah. is really cool. I love the fact that it doesn't doesn't work, and that kind of, again, gives you an, a hint of how far removed from the Thals the Daleks are, because these were... Originally, they were one one race of people. Centuries and then, before, yeah. 
you know, the atomic mutations came and they mutated in different directions. Very different directions, obviously, now. Well, the Daleks now, showing that they are pissy little assholes, decide to just say to hell with it and detonate a neutron bomb to increase the radiation on the planet to a level where even the Thals cannot survive. <sighs> These Daleks, man, they uh, yeah. they don't they don't have they don't understand proportion at all. They no. they're just going to go well, all they, out. You know, they are, they're, uh, you know, you don't want to say they're a direct Nazi analogy, but they're definitely, you know, this was written by a generation that had survived the Second World War, and yes. there definitely are parallels to the worst in humankind in the Daleks. Oh, I think it, that without a doubt, there's a, it's not, a, it's certainly not a one-to-one with right. the Nazis or, uh, you know, fascism in Italy or anything like that. But there are a number of elements, and it comes out sometimes in uh, the dialogue that the, the Daleks sling around, that um, it makes it kind of hard to miss. Uh, it, in, a modern, in a modern viewer, I think you could miss it because there's a certain uh, distance we now have from the kind of common language, the common phrasing that uh, I think that, especially in the 60s, all the way up through the 70s and 80s even, I think that would just be obvious to a viewer that, oh yeah, that's a little, that's a little nod to this little bit of history, or that's a nod to that particular attitude, and, and uh, still plays quite well, I think, even without uh, that, that bit of history keying into how you're thinking about the situation. Though. Right. Right, you may not get the echoes, but I, I think the the general intent is is pretty clear. Agreed. You know, you don't Agreed. have don't have to know a lot about Stalin or Hitler or, or any of the other terrible dictators of that age True. to see the uh, the parallels in a in a kind of xenophobic crazy race that's uh, <laughs> looking to inhabit the White House. Oh wait, no, 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 no. <laughs> that is looking they're, they're to seeking run to... other people out of their planet. That's exactly what it is. Well, back at the Thal camp, Doctor Who realizes that the Daleks still have the fluid link, that piece from the TARDIS, that uh, he is going to need to be able to get them the hell off this planet. So that means that the Thals really are their only hope of retrieving the missing component. He urges Aladon to fight the Daleks to secure a safe future for his species, but uh, he refuses, insisting that the Thals are a peaceful people. And that passivity, Doctor Who realizes, is probably going to be the Thals' death. And this is before he even knows about the fact that the Daleks are just going to detonate a neutron bomb. Oh, I should mention, though, at this point, for those of you that are younger than me, there were no neutron bombs in 1965. That actually was invented later than 1965. I'm not even sure it was in the theoretical stage. Maybe it was, and maybe that's where Terra Nation picked it up. But in terms of we have them now, neutron bombs, that came more than a decade later in terms of actual history. So it's really kind of interesting that that, that science, bad science fiction Dalek idea was later incorporated into the, the U.S. arsenal, I think probably under the Reagan administration, I'm thinking, was remember. when all that happened. But, but that's why they call it science fiction, baby. Yep, yep. Science and fiction, and eventually, if you're not careful, it becomes fact for good or ill. Uh, yes, yes, exactly. Well, in response to this passivity... Doctor Who tricks Aladon by pretending to order Ian to take a Thal woman to the Daleks in exchange for the confiscated and a component of the TARDIS. Uh, this horrifies Aladon, who actually punches Ian to the ground, then realizes that the Thals can fight for the things that they care about. And after a pretty interesting conversation where Doctor Who kind of pushes that point through his head... Um, Aladon, Doctor Who, and Susan then lead the Thals in an attack on the city entrance. 
The Daleks foil that assault, however, and it's really I really like the way that's filmed. It becomes evident at that point just how much effort was put into building that uh, that city set. Yes. That, that whole area where there's this rocky incline up to the city itself, uh, because... We never really get a great shot of the city itself. It's like you see the foyer to the city sitting atop this rocky cliff-like area. There's maybe, and this struck me as odd, that there's maybe one matte painting shot of the city. Yeah, and it's from the other side. Right, and and there might be another one, but the the odd thing is that the serial actually had had a miniature (laughs) of the city that they used repeatedly and had a lot more... In, in this, that's one of the things that bothers me about it. There's not that much of a sense of how how the city works and how it connects to the landscape because they're just not showing it. But there is this great set where they've got this rocky cliff face, which is not really steep. You can you can climb up it, and then atop is is the the metal slash plastic city. Yeah, and then the that Dalek... rocky cliff face opens up. <laughs> yes. Which was, am- right. which was amazing, because I had been so long since I'd seen the movie, watching it this time, I was like, oh my god, I forgot. Right. <laughs> and and I, it caused me to go, wait, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's a valid reaction as well, so yes. Right. Yeah, because at that point, they're using, they're trying to blind the Dalek uh, remote sensing devices by flashing mirrors at them and stuff and then they yeah, open up Yeah, which is the, very clever. It's another it's another smart thing dreamed up by Doctor Who. So. Right. Well, uh the 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 as, as stated the Daleks foil the assault and though most of the the Thals are ma- managed to escape, Doctor Who and Susan are recaptured. Now, meanwhile, they've sent Ian and Barbara along with a couple of the Thals uh, uh they around to the backside to a, to another entrance to infiltrate the city from kind of the rear. The, the back side of the city is up against a set of cliffs. Right. And behind the cliff, there's there's a big swamp and and maybe a lake. It's kind of unclear because I don't think we ever really see a full yeah, lake. We were, that's, the, that's the lake where we were supposed to have some mutations and a couple of monsters that right. we didn't get to see, they, unfortunately. We know that that's there, because, and they know that there's an entrance because they're following a water intake pipe, I think, as I recall. Yes. Is how they're figuring it out. But you have to go through a swamp, climb a mountain, and then you can come into the back door. That's the theory. That's their <laughs> idea. Well, while navigating a swamp, uh, Eladon, not Aladon, but Eladon is killed by the marsh-dwelling mutation. Oh, there are two deaths. Oh, there are two deaths. You're right. You're right. Because he just gets, he gets yanked under the water, right? Right. Yeah, we don't really see it. We don't see Yeah, but it is still There's, another death. But it's right, not done yep. by but it's not done by the Daleks. So it is not done by the Daleks. You're right. So we still only have one Dalek kill in this in this show so far. Hey, hey! I saw a great big thing in the water. What was it? I don't know. I didn't wait to find out. Are you all right? Look. must get their water from here. The pipes must go straight through the mountain. Perhaps into the city of the Daleks. If we could find that I'll way... the we... water bags. We'll need them. I'll catch you up. Right, come on. Oh! 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 
And it is this period where I think both of us feel that the movie either needed a little more juice, like, say, a monster, or something, yep. because the whole segment where they're... Uh, they're jumping across that ravine and trying and, and finding their way through this back entrance seems it, it, they, they try to, they try to add a little excitement by having uh, one of the other uh, kind of the more cowardly of the two remaining falls uh, nearly fall to his death while jumping across that ravine. But honestly, it just, it, it, it it's okay, but there's, it doesn't have what I think they hoped it would. And right. I, like I say, I can't, I can't avoid stating again that I just think that they were counting on having the excitement of uh, a mutation or a monster kind of pushing things forward in this section. It's not yeah, there. It just, it just never feels properly dangerous. And even in the very low budget television show, and you could tell how low budget the show was maybe a little bit by how much, Terry Nation got for the license to do the movie. Yeah. <laughs> the budget of the real show was not very much. But even in that, they actually had the there's the Thal that's killed there is actually sucked into this kind of whirlpool effect that they managed to do, right. which is is really pretty cool. And maybe there was a monster there. And there's even a cheesy little monster that rises up out of the muck that uh, Ian sees. And in the film, Ian like washes his face in the in the the pond and says oh there's a monster down there we should leave and, and that's I don't it think we you never see it right. at all right so yeah th- this is the place where it could have been really exciting and actually in the original serial it's pretty tense and exciting and the guy you know spoiler alert the guy that falls off the cliff in the serial ends up almost dragging Ian off the cliff as Ian and, and the other guy that's with him try to get other people to help them because mm-hmm. the other folks have gone ahead. This guy is dangling from the rope and actually cuts his own rope and falls to his death in order to save Ian, which is, you know, this movie could have used a little juice like that. I agree. I completely agree. I wish that they had done a little bit of that. So, but so. we are now at the point where the Daleks start the bomb countdown. Uh, Ian, Barbara... And uh, two of the uh, other Thals, uh, they penetrate the city, join Aldon and the rest of the Thals who've returned to rescue Doctor Who and Susan. The Thals and the human, humans enter the control room and they struggle with the Daleks while Doctor Who yells for someone to stop the bomb. Uh, Ian attracts the Daleks' attention and dives for cover as they fire at him, inadvertently destroying their main control console, killing themselves and freezing the countdown. So... Uh, even though Ian is a bit of a doofus, uh, they do he does show, save the day. He does save the day here, um, and I uh, honestly I'm glad that they they show that Ian is definitely diving for cover and not tripping over his own face, so that we don't <laughs> get some kind of inadvertent bit of you know useless humor tossed in here at the end. It actually right. works pretty well. Yeah, it, it's a a pretty exciting scene. It's got a lot of explosions and stuff. I think it's worth mentioning that one of the things that I know that I was kind of taken aback by and i think other doctor who fans are put off by in the mu- in the movie is the daleks are these little rolling pepper pot tank like things mm-hmm. and they have two limbs that come out the front one of which is a blaster weapon and the other of which is like a a crazy suction cup that they manip- manipulate things with in the show the daleks blast people the traditional effect was, well, this was before they could put in all those cool Star Wars kind of laser blasts that they used to do. So what they would do, the Daleks would shoot someone, the, the film would go to negative, and they would play a sound effect, and it would kind of flash, and the person would fall down dead, 
having been blasted by this. For whatever reason, probably practicality and time and money, the blasters in the movies shoot basically fire extinguisher fog. Yeah. Well, there's a there's a reason for that. There's two reasons. One, uh, the reason they couldn't do like the, um, the 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 negative image thing in the film is that that's something you can really only do when you're shooting in black and white. Uh, so to try that effect in color would not have worked at all. So they had to come up with something, and their original idea was to have these things shoot flames. Right. And that idea got a little ways into into development, and they realized. That is a bad idea. It's way too dangerous. <laughs> way too, exactly. Way too dangerous. And worse than that, it might destroy the costumes. So we can't right. have that. <laughs> Current season of Game of Thrones, notwithstanding, fire on set, bad. Bad. So they uh, rethought. They uh, came up and they and they came up with what was essentially kind of the opposite of flames, which was you know uh, shooting out fire extinguisher stuff, which honestly works just fine. We could yeah, it used, could be scalding steam or whatever, but it, or whatever. it is a little surprising if you're used to either the negative effect or the actual, you know, Star Wars kind of laser effect that the right. Daleks later have. Right, and, so, they, and they could have laid a sound effect over it to make it even more effective, but quite honestly, I, it's, it's, it's okay as it stands. Yeah, yeah, and it actually it works pretty well in this final scene where a lot of them are shooting it in at, all at the same time, and then everything blows up. Well, at this point, uh, the story's winding down. They back in the jungle uh, with the fluid link recovered. But the Daleks have died. The Daleks have died. That? They've all died because when they destroy their control panel, they destroy their electricity, and without electricity, we know that they perish. Yep. So they've all perished. So the travelers depart in the TARDIS to return home. Uh, but uh, of course, uh, we we have to have a little bit of comedy here at the end because we're not done slapping you around with comedy. Uh, they arrive not in London but somehow in front of a screen showing them an old movie. I mean, no, I'm sorry. Um, but in front, in front of an advancing Roman army. Uh, Which is, it, it is worth pointing out that he, he said that it's an old movie because it's clearly a, a screen projection. Yeah, and it's and clearly film footage. Yeah, It's clearly a film projection is because the perspective in no way matches the perspective of the rest of the shot. It's like Ian is looking at the the feet of the foot soldiers who are marching toward him kind of it's just it's it's a, it's, a, very, it's a bad ma- it's a bad match it's know. a bad match and it's a strange choice because i guess you take the stock footage of romans marching that you can get but should have chosen something else to be born yeah should have chosen something that actually looked like it was really coming at you well you know what they could have done something that would have made it a lot simpler and easier why not just find any random footage that they could have bought from someplace of of a dinosaur, and then the, right. th- then it doesn't matter what angle you you are shooting the the footage that you're showing from. It could be from anywhere. The TARDIS could be uh, appearing above, any place ab- beneath, above it, the side. It doesn't matter. But then again, we're not there. We're not making these choices. They are, and right. they did what they could. So, right. And it, I think you know, I, I don't remember for sure, and I didn't check. I think that one of the next episodes of Doctor Who was the Romans at oh, the time. Oh, yeah, you may be right. It's not It's not the very next one, but it might be the one after that. So there, it, it may have been a nod to that, or it may have just been what they could afford and what was cheap or whatever, and what they thought would be funny. And it's, it's, it's kind of cheap, and it's not very funny. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, a couple but of hey. things. A couple of things I'd like to I'd like to mention is that uh, early on in pre-production for this, um, the the it was thought that uh, Freddie Francis, the fa- fantastic Oscar-winning cinematographer and of course the director of a number of Amicus and uh, Hammer films. Uh, he was th- he was probably going to be the guy who was going to direct this, but of course it ended up being directed by Gordon Fleming. Uh, but Francis was so involved in the pre-production up to a certain point that uh, he actually did a good bit of the casting in the movie as well, including I think both of the female leads. So uh, there's a little uh, Freddie Francis connection to this film there that I was unaware of until recently. Also, um, you'll notice that Gordon Fleming, the director. Uh, primarily worked in television. You can look his, at his rather extensive list of credits, and he has very few feature films. Most of his work is on television. And since that, uh, since one of the, the major quotes from the producer-slash-screenwriter, uh, Mr. Sabotsky, uh, was a very clear statement of purpose in that the most important thing he feels about a film is the screenplay, and the director really doesn't matter. <laughs> you can kind of... <laughs> He literally said that. So what you have here is is a, a producer slash screenplay writer who considers the director the man who essentially tells the actors where to stand and when the camera should be on and off. So, right. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, you know, I, I gotta say that that uh, even as a writer, I know directors are important. Uh, I think a good screenplay can overcome a bad director, um, and yes. certainly a a good director can overcome a bad screenplay, but it's really best you get both. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, This is the way I've always heard it put by uh, filmmakers. The screenplay is your blueprint. The director is the construction coordinator. He is working with your screenplay to build you a film. (laughs) Right. Both are, both need to be as good as they can be. Yep. Well, And um, and it's surprising how often they're not. Yeah no, yeah, no kidding. Tell me about it. Well, well, here's one of the reasons why Sabotsky may have felt this way about directors in general, and maybe Gordon Fleming in particular. In the editing, they discovered that uh, our director had made a basic error about the Daleks. Uh, he hadn't realized that the Daleks' lights, the lights on their tops, were supposed to flash in synchronization with their speech. So right. when they got to the cutting room... They had to rewrite a lot, re- rewrite and re-record a lot of the dialogue of the Daleks to fit the flashes of the lights. So, to my mind, that very clearly explains some of the really odd, stilted, and kind of bizarre cadences of the already bizarre Dalek conversations in the film. Um, right. The uh, w- when you know that there are a couple of scenes in the movie where Daleks are 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 talking to each other that make a whole lot more sense. So. Which will it be? Why? Many centuries ago, there were two peoples on this planet. Ourselves, the Daleks, and the Thals. After the Neutronic War, our forefathers retired into the city, protected by this clothing. Most of the Thal perished in the war. Those who survived and remain on this planet are horrible mutations, monsters. They have a drug which cures the sickness of radiation. If we get the drug, we will give some to you. Without it, you will die. 
None of us is well enough to go. One of you must. I'll go. Susan. She's too dangerous. I did not know that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, there's a, there's a lot of things to talk about this film, but I've got to say, I've got to tell this story. There were a lot of ideas back in the back in those days. Um, there was a lot of time and time and expense spent uh, coming up with ways to kind of ballyhoo a film like this. Uh, it was actually one of the better, more interesting things about some of the films that came out at that time. Sometimes the the ad the, the ad the ad uh, the advertising the the chances taken the ideas being spent and spun to try to sell a picture might be a little bit more interesting than the picture itself and in this case I don't think that's necessarily true they there were a lot of things because of course uh, the Doctor Who franchise has always been very smart about marketing themselves and by this time Dalek mania had kind of taken control and so there was going to be a way to uh, wedge Daleks into almost anything and my favorite thing about this besides i mean there were you know there were black and white line drawings for kids to color you know all kinds of things like that but my favorite has got to be that cadbury's supplied a recipe for a dalek chocolate cake (laughs) and this was part of the ballyhoo stuff and this is the quote quote draw your local newspaper editor's attention to this recipe he might well print it on the women's page it is quite likely that a local baker would like to produce these cakes, particularly during the period when you are playing the film. So, in other words, maybe you can sucker some baker <laughs> into cross-promoting <laughs> this film in his store by making Dalek stuff cakes. Like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we need more of that. We should talk to Christopher Mim and Joshua Kennedy about doing that. Exactly. Their, I think that reading films. through some of those old uh, press booklets for movies like this could give you some ideas that, while obviously being to a degree or another pretty silly, man, they could also be fun. If you get some people yeah. into the spirit of it, that could be a blast. It could be. could be. You know, I mean, people, I've known people that have thrown Game of Thrones kickoff parties in past seasons with you know all period cooked food oh well i have friends menus like that yeah i have friends who do that right now with every episode they gather on sunday nights as the episodes premiere uh, and they decide during the week before you know what uh, who's gonna who's gonna cook what and this that and the other what little bits and pieces are going to be brought along so yeah that's that's pretty standard and i think it would be something that like I say, you know, especially with you know Christopher Mim and 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 lower budget uh, monster films being made even today, it could be something to just have fun with. Well, yeah, and and uh, Christopher Mim actually has had a food uh, in his films, the the Burger Dog, which was <laughs> they created an actual Burger Dog, and it was the unfortunately the manufacturer stopped making them and moved away from where they're where they're at. Uh, but it actually won the Minnesota State Fair's Best New Food the year that it came out. And I got to say, I had some of those suckers, and they were awesome. <laughs> if you if you treated it like a burger, it tastes like a burger. If you treated it like a hot dog, it tasted like a hot dog. It was the strangest damn thing. So it's, it weird. is possible to do those kind of things today. But uh, it would be fun if more people did them. 
Well, uh, one other thing about the Daleks and the kind of design used within the film. Um, this is a quote from um, director uh, Gordon Fleming. He said that, uh, quote, we had a huge problem over whether we were going to show what was inside the Dalek. No one had ever shown what a Dalek looked like, and we decided that it was basically a brain and intelligence with no recognizable features. I remember going to talk to the censor about what I was going to show, uh, discussing potentially controversial scenes in advance of shooting was you know, something they did all the time. It was just something that, had, that kind of had to be done. Uh, when I took the lid off this thing, how I might be able to get round not showing it. Ultimately, we decided it was a brain with one arm because it had to have the means to operate the machine, firing the gun and steering the thing, and we showed the claw hand on the end of the arm. Now, of course, that's, that's the end of what he had to say, but of course, what we end up with in the film is we don't see a brain. We just see that kind of creature from the Black Lagoon-like claw. And uh, I have to say that I feel like it's very probable, if not definite, that we got cheated out of seeing the whole creature they constructed. And it may have been because they felt at the time that the, it didn't look as good as they hoped it would or whatever it might be. But now I'm kind of frustrated about it. <laughs> I don't know if that's true, though, because they, what they did it pretty much exactly matches what they did in the serial. So it seems to me that any any indication that they maybe were going to do something different than the serial <laughs> is probably just Baliho. <laughs> Hey, you may be right. You may be right. Well, actually, these comments were made uh, long after the fact. This was years after the fact that right. Fleming was, ta- was was making these comments. So, the um, right, yeah, but you, you know the way movie people are; they tend to embellish those kind of stories later on. You know, every every production becomes bigger than it really was. <laughs> every obstacle becomes more heroically overcome than it really was. You know, it's <laughs> and it's, it's just a and it's not. You know, it's not just a movie thing. It's a, it's a common human thing. You know, it's it's hard for me to talk about editing B three, the the module that was destroyed, without embellishing it just a little bit here and there. And over the years, <laughs> you you know, if you if you do that, and I've tried not to, if you do it enough, then at some point you start to blur the lines between what really happened and what you remember happened and, and that kind of stuff. So yeah, so I can believe that they they were thinking about it. But the, it's interesting to me that they ended up doing the exact same thing that the TV serial did. Well, I want to get one more quote in here, and this is actually uh, this is rather fun. This is from Freddie Francis himself. Um, <laughs> um, Sabotsky, the producer and the screenwriter, uh, Freddie Francis remembers something. Sabotsky kind of considered himself a bit of a jack-of-all-trades because he was involved in the film editing, and of course he wrote the script, and he was the producer. But uh, Freddie Francis says, uh, uh, the production company, Amicus, uh, would always accept less money than budgeted to make their films. To make up the difference, Milton Sabotsky would write the scripts, and he wasn't a very good writer. (laughs) Milton also insisted on doing the editing, but unfortunately, he was no more an editor than he was a writer. One had these terrible fights, unquote. So (laughs) Freddie's being very blunt (laughs) in stating that, yes, he made a number of films for Amicus and worked with Milton Sabotsky on a number of occasions, and he's not that good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I mean, producing it yourself is a time-honored tradition of of how to save money on something. I mean, that's one of the reasons I do for the the books that my little publishing company does, including my own, I usually do the covers. <laughs> oh, well, yeah, of course. Because uh, my time is free. 
<laughs> to me, anyway. Well, it's, yeah, you know, it's actually it's worth a lot of money to other people, but <laughs> but if it's it's me doing the work for myself, it's free. Well, overall, I really enjoy this film. Although I have to say, my memory of it was um, rather more impressive than my actuality. Uh, I had not seen this movie in well over a decade, possibly twelve years. And my memory of it was the last time I saw this, I really, really, really enjoyed this a lot. And this time around, I still enjoyed it, but I didn't enjoy it nearly as much as my memory told me that I was going to. So I do like this movie, and it has made me very excited to visit the second one again for the first time in probably as long a time. Um, right, yeah, me too. But uh, I haven't done it yet because I want to hold off because I know that it, when we when uh, when I do, I want to be prepping to actually talk about it with you again. But right. How do you feel about this film? How, we, 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 we know it, uh, it doesn't factor into the original television series. It's a, it's, it's, old, it's, it's whole different animal. It's this kind of alternate universe. So, right, yeah. It's the, the forgotten doctor is yeah. what the uh, – one of the, the – chap, the only chapter – I've got a whole bunch of Doctor Who books that were written between – I mean thick hardbacks written between the 20th and the 25th anniversary. And checking them out, there was only one chapter in any of those about these films and it was called and it's not a very long chapter and it was called the forgotten doctor and i i think in a way it is for the forgotten doctor because it doesn't fit the continuity it is just simply repeating shows that were in the original serials but i think in a way it's if you leave out the fact that they changed him from an alien to a human it's not a bad introduction to doctor who and the daleks and probably if you know it's a kids film it's really pretty good as a as a grown up as a grown up. I have I have some issues with it, you know. And certainly, I had more joy in rewatching the original serial than I did in rewatching this. But on the other hand, you got to give them props for trying and going for it and taking taking a real risk. Even though Doctor Who was, you know, popular at the time, it maybe wasn't popular enough to to support a huge movie series and the fact that they did one and then they did another one and it's i enjoy it i recommend people who especially people who like 1960s culture and kitsch and that kind of stuff i think will really enjoy it the plastic sets like i said the first when i saw them yesterday i was like oh my god these look terrible (laughs) but then i watched the serial in between and even though the serial is cheaper in some ways it's a little more creative with what it does but then when i came from the serial back to the the color film i was like yeah, this isn't as bad as I thought it was in terms of sets and stuff. This was, you know, they were really they put some effort into it. It's not the well, fan really in did. me. I think they the put fan a lot in of me is always it. going to want to wish that it had matched the show better. And I got to say, we haven't mentioned this at all. The place where I really think the sets fall down in this is in the TARDIS itself. Oh which well, yeah, yeah, basically. The original Doctor Who has a unique design with a console and these strange circular patterns on the wall, and it's iconic. It's brilliant and iconic. The interior of the TARDIS here looks like a stage with a black backdrop with lots of wires and and goofy-looking machines just kind of strewn all over it, including the big lever that Ian hits. (laughs) I'll be honest. It what, just, it, what it looks like to me overall is someone's walk-in closet where they were doing an electronics high school experiment. That's right. It's just of all the things in the movie, 
that's in my opinion probably the weakest one and and why they went that way when they're yes it's widescreen and the tardis control room back then certainly was maybe not designed for widescreen but surely they could have done something that didn't look like your junk drawer I, I agree. I think that they they decided to to spend their money in other areas. They spent their money on, you know, the that big Dalek City soundstage right. that was eighteen hundred, you know, eight. eight, eight uh, I'm sorry, eighteen thousand sweet feet square, and the you know the huge petrified forest set, which is just massive. Which yeah, and those took are up, very cool. took up an entire soundstage is like th- literally thirty thousand square feet of petrified forest. That's where they put their money, you know. Right, but they could have. That being said, I think they could have made smarter choices, especially based on what was in the television show. I mean, for God's sakes, rent the television show console, at least. I honestly (laughs) feel that the TARDIS set was, even if it wasn't, it feels like it was an afterthought. Right. It feels like we ran out of money and this is all we could get from the props house today, which is just too bad. It's... uh, it cheap uh, honestly i think it cheapens the whole effect of the movie and i think it's and it's been as long as it's been for you since i've watched the second one my my memory is it's probably just as bad there but I, it's probably the exact same set you know once you've established it i mean that's the one thing that you've established in the first film you don't have to you know you don't have to spend any money on right right <laughs> yeah not that i'd really call it a set honestly it's it's bad, man. <laughs> it's, it's, not, it just, it's not good. You're right. It just, right. It's bad, and it drags, considering how good most of the rest of the sets are, including the interior of the house. Yeah. They, they could have done something. They could, you know, there's so much they could have done. Yeah, but the interior I mean, of the uh, house is, is, is an easy one, man, because that's, that, it, looks, it looks good because, it, because it's, it's, a set, it's a set that could be used on about a half a hundred different films. Right. So. Yeah, and, th- and that's probably true. I just wish, that if... They could have taken the the wall of lights when the the Dalek when the the cliff face opens up and it's got that wall of lights or yeah. Dalek uh, machinery there. If they just taken that piece and wrapped it around the set, <laughs> said this is the interior, <laughs> of the TARDIS, the interior of the TARDIS, it would have been a, it would have been a better choice than the one they made, uh, and uh, that just puzzles the hell out of me. It, it looks like someone's idea of a mad scientist workshop In if you closet. didn't have. In a closet. If you didn't have the money to build a mad scientist workshop the way Universal did, it's you know it's and because it it's got as near as I could tell just a black backdrop behind it, it's almost got kind of an Ed Wood feel to it. It's just oh wow, you're right. It's it's the cheapest thing in the in, in the film, and it's a shame. Despite that, it's a fun film, you know, and I think it's good for kids, and I think it's not a Aside from the fact that it leaves out all the alien origins, I think it's not a bad introduction to Doctor Who. Even though, if you watch this, you're going to expect that someone's going to call him Doctor Who. And as we know, the Doctor's real name is kind of an ongoing, I wouldn't say a joke, but it's an ongoing point of reference in the show about who does or does not know his real name. And we know that there's only, you know, very, very few people. I don't know what his name was. Well, I'll say that the thing the thing about names in the movie that that really kind of bothers me, and it, it's something I can't get away from, is uh, it, every time it's this little audio hiccup, and it's like something skipped on the soundtrack when they say TARDIS instead of the TARDIS. Right. <laughs> Without the indefinite article there, I just feel like somebody screwed up, and they need to do a retake. 
Uh, right. Well, and every time you said Doctor Who does this when we were, you know, giving the synopsis here, is that I had that same little hiccup. <laughs> like, yeah. Wait, what do you mean, Doctor Who? It's the Doctor. <laughs> the Doctor. It's like you're a better man than I am for actually managing to say Doctor Who that whole time because I would have certainly. I had to have it written down. I had to have it written down. <laughs> yeah, I don't think this one is the one. I think it's the next film. Where he actually says, I am Doctor Who, and this is, and then introduces Susan or something like that. It's like... No, I think, he, I think he actually says it in this one, to be honest. Does he? Maybe. Mm. And it's it's still kind of jarring. <laughs> yeah, it is. It's jarring. It's kind of jarring, but well, it's Steve, still... Steve? And it's Peter Cushing, for God's it's sake. It's Peter Cushing, who's one of my favorite actors of all time, and, and I love seeing him in anything, even when he... Uh, <laughs> just, just the other night, I was having dinner with uh, a friend from out of town, and she was talking about how uh, she brought up the movie Shockwaves, mm-hmm. which uh, Peter Cushing made in... Uh, he made it right before he made Star Wars, and he plays a German mad scientist... Right, on an island of zombies or something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, under, underwater zombies. It's a pretty creepy little film back when you could make a pretty creepy film that was still actually rated PG. And this is a, this is a fun little movie, but he's playing a German scientist. And i got to tell you, Peter Cushing and a German accent aren't often in the same room together. <laughs> <laughs> he's trying. But man, right. that, that, that accent, that German accent, it's sometimes there and it's sometime outside taking a smoke. <laughs> But it's still it's Peter Cushing. Yeah, exactly. He's still <laughs> you know, great. It doesn't matter. And it's you know, and and I can tell uh, I, this is obviously a place to mention this. His portrayal of, of I'm going to say the Doctor, the portrayal of Doctor Who, is one of the things that influenced the way I, I've written him and I've written him. <laughs> I've written his namesake in Doctor Cushing's Chamber of Horrors. It's this this character, his Doctor Who character, kind of combined with his character from. Uh, from the the Burroughs Center of the Earth picture. Oh, that's I'm, cool. That's a nice combination, yeah. Yeah, at the Earth's core. So the, when I write Dr. Cushing, those are the things that I'm thinking of. Very nice. And obviously you should think of Peter Cushing in the same way that you should, when the, the character named Vincent comes on screen, you should be thinking of Vincent Price. So, of course. <laughs> yeah, there are those. I, I do name check. I do those little nods, and they're, they're obvious tributes. I guess, so. and it's one of the one of the nice little smile moments every time I read one of those stories. Well, Steve, yeah. tell people again where they can find your stories and uh, your books. All right. Well, my main site is sdsullivan.com, or you can spell out my name, stephendsullivan.com, but you have to remember I'm a Ph. Stephen like Stephen King to do that. So sdsullivan.com. You can go directly to my Patreon with Cushing Horrors, Dot com and that says in e horrors you know terrible things <laughs> if you want to check that out it's also linked on my website you can also go to manosfilm.com if you want to see manos or daikaijuattack.com will will take you to uh, something about daikaiju attack on my site so and there's also facebook and all those kind of things too excellent and i always tell people that uh uh, I, I would remind them that you also did uh, an adaptation, a novelization of White Zombie that uh, I'm a big fan of. So, thank you. Yeah, I had a great time doing that. That was a that was a, a cool challenge, and I had a great time doing it. And I was just thinking about that too. Love that. Love that so much. But thanks, man. 
No, 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 man. You, you, you honestly, you've brought a lot of reading joy to my life. And to be honest, I, I love gabbing with you and getting the chance to sit down and talk about uh, a movie that I think uh, is kind of, uh, it's one of those little odd things that a lot of people, even who enjoy Doctor Who, uh, might not be that well aware of. So, right. time the to bring some attention doctor. to it. The Forgotten Doctor, just if you know going in that there are going to be differences and that you have to take it as, as a parallel universe or it's not canon. And it's going to mess with your head if you've seen the original somewhat. Yeah. But enjoy it for what it is. It's exactly. Peter Cushing. It's Peter yeah. Cushing. <laughs> Peter Cushing is always worth seeing. Always. Thank you very much, Steve. Oh, you're very welcome. Prepare for a spine-tingling, nerve-shattering podcast featuring all your favorite monsters. You won't believe your ears when you listen to Monster Kid Radio. Here, your host, Derek M. Cook, and his ever-rotating stable of guests discuss your favorite classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies. Subscribe to Monster Kid Radio through iTunes or Stitcher, or visit monsterkidradio.net before the next weekly episode of Monster Kid Radio. Go through the archives for interviews with Sarah Karloff, Victoria Price, and Joel Hodgson. Listen to the discussions about movies like Creature from the Black Lagoon, Island of Terror, and King Kong. And don't forget convention coverage from Monster Bash and the H.P. Lovecraft Film Festival, Classic Monsters, Modern Talk, and the head of Rondo Hatton, only on Monster Kid Radio. I just wanted to once again thank... Steve Sullen for joining me to talk about these, uh, well, rather obscure pieces of Doctor Who history. Uh, We do have plans to do another podcast here in the next couple of months covering the second one of these. As you could hear in the show, we're pretty enthusiastic about getting a chance to revisit that second Peter Cushing Doctor Who outing. Also, something that he forgot to mention, and luckily, after the fact, he told me about, or reminded me of, I should say, is that uh, if you enjoy his Daikaiju Attack story, uh, which I, of course, as I've said, really do, uh, he has done a couple of short stories in that world, even though he hasn't gotten back to write the, uh, a full sequel novel yet. There are two short stories. Uh, there's one called Kongu vs. Kaiju in... Uh, The Storyteller's Anthology, uh, put out by Chenault and Gray Publishing, so you can find that. And also, and most intriguingly, Daikaiju vs. Cthulhu in Cthulhu Haiku 2, which is uh, something you can pick up. Uh, I know you can pick it up on Amazon because I just bought it (laughs) via Kindle. (laughs) I just bought the Kindle version of that collection because it's only 99 cents. I couldn't resist. I mean, I I know I already want to read the Steve Sullivan story in there. And uh, hey, 99 cents for a bunch of other stories that circle around this kind of stuff, uh, kind of Cthulhu mythos madness stuff. Hey, sounds good to me. Uh, So yeah, in my near future, I think I'll be reading Daikaiju vs. Cthulhu. Boy, that's right up my street. So once again, thanks to Steve Sullivan for joining me. And thanks to committing to coming back and doing another Doctor Who-centric episode. I love Doctor Who so much, and uh, especially the older stuff. It just it it uh, it's a combination of nostalgia and joy. And uh, I hope that you have enjoyed this show. Uh, I'd love to tell you what's coming up next on the Bloody Pit, but I'll be honest. I can't remember what I'm going to do next. I can't figure out exactly what the next show will be. It might be uh, that you finally get to hear, oh, that uh, road trip podcast that Mark Maddox and I did 
man, that's going to take some editing. But at any rate, thank you once again for tuning in and listening to The Bloody Pit. I am Rod Barnett, and we will talk to you again soon.